Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about Truman Capote, a writer who made it all the way from rural Monroeville, Alabama, to the glittering heights of New York society, but not without discovering some monsters, both unspoiled and spoiled on the way, and turning into a bit of a spoiled monster himself. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Today's subject is the man who would be king, Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, first-born son of Edward VII, grandson of Queen Victoria, a man who would have been known as, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, king, defender of the faith, and emperor of India, but who was known to his friends and family simply as Eddie. Uh, Regular listeners will know that I have a morbid fascination with the royal family in the same way that other people, you know, like to watch YouTube videos of people popping their own swollen zits and stuff like that. Are you suggesting here that the royal family is the great swollen zit of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? No, that the great swollen zit is the class system. The royal family is just the pus that emanates forth from it when you give it a squeeze. And, uh, but yeah, Albert, Albert Victor or Eddie is a prime example of a a sort of classic British royal story. Uh, An intellectually dull man, charmless, with neither cultural interests nor creative talents, but who, due to sheer accident of birth, found himself permitted to indulge all of his whims. Now, one thing that's always so remarkable about the British, British royal family is that having inherited all the privileges that the earth could possibly offer, all the opportunities, they do so little with it. So many of the people we've covered in this show have started from unremarkable beginnings the children of migrants or of the middle classes, uh, growing up in some boring English shire or Hicksville, USA, or working in the factories of pre-war St. Petersburg or something like this. And then they go on to change the world for good or bad to, to write great books, to become spies or presidents or master criminals. But the stories of the British Royal family, especially those who um, don't themselves become regents that the minor Royals are stories of trivial people where they do break out of their tedious duties and have stories to tell us is in their sex lives, where the glow of fame and the obsequious nature of their subjects allow them to indulge their own predilections and peccadilloes, which actually might tell us something about the sexual cultures of their time. Prince Eddie is one of those royals. Prince Eddie was born in 1864 at Frogmore House, a country house uh, still owned by the British royal family that's in Berkshire. His grandmother was Queen Victoria, who was still deep in mourning following the death of her beloved husband, Eddie's grandfather, Prince Albert, just three years earlier. Eddie wasn't Victoria's first grandchild. That was the son of her eldest daughter, Victoria, a child named Wilhelm, who was already five years old when Eddie was born. Wilhelm would grow up to be the Kaiser of Germany and Britain's adversary in World War I, such as the inbred nature of the European royals. Her grandchildren number amongst them a Kaiser and a King, three Queens, an Empress, and a Crown Princess. But Eddie was the first son of her first son, and so was second in line to the throne. These sound like people who have a very gen- normal genetics that result from years of uh, constantly marrying outside of the same uh, small number of inbred families. Yes? Yeah. 
I mean, the reason the reason it happens is is you have to keep try and keep power within a small group of people. So you keep marrying amongst those same people. And yeah, and it, in much the same way that the Habsburg Empire, the Habsburg rulers had this thing called the Habsburg jaw, which was a genetic defect of this protruding jaw that came about through um, being inbred. And then the result in in this royal family was um, was of course uh, in the son of Tsar Nicholas, who had um, hemophilia. Yeah, they end up resembling, you know, these like breeds of toy dog that have evolved so far from the wolf. And you look at it and think, oh, God, what hath man wrought against yeah, exactly. nature? Yeah. Um, like almost everything in Victorian Britain, he was named after Victoria and Albert. And so he was christened on March the 10th, Albert Victor Christian Edward, and was known as Eddie. Uh, Eddie's younger brother, George, who would become the third in line was born just over a year later. And so the boys were, the brothers were sort of educated together at home by a tutor as is common for the Royals. His tutor, John Neil Dalton, uh, using the language of the time described him as quote, abnormally dormant. He certainly had some difficulty learning new skills throughout his life, but the presence of his younger brother helped him pick up some basic educational abilities. That said, that said academic life is not normally the tradition of the Royal family anyway, to put it mildly. Prince Charles is actually the first royal ever to graduate from university. And in the words of David Colquhoun, if I wanted a tip for the winner of the 1430 at Newmarket, I'd ask a royal. For most other questions, I wouldn't. Not that there's anything wrong, of course, with lacking educational achievements, but it's just to say that despite having the opportunity, the royal family doesn't cultivate that. They prefer to raise their children within a military framework. It's also the result of the cold and often brutal parenting style of the royals. Speaking of her own son, of his own son no sorry speaking of her own son the future edward the seventh so eddie's dad um queen victoria said he had a quote feeble and abnormal skull and a small empty brain which is a, a way to talk about your own firstborn child or first firstborn son well as we've said before the parent-child relationships in the british upper classes tend to be extremely good and normal and uh full of love and care and healthy relationships so that's yeah and then everyone deals with any like problems in each so. generation. They don't bother passing them down to the next generation. So. Yeah, of course. So um, at the tender age of 13, following in such a tradition of yeah, hating your own children and wanting to suffer, uh, Eddie and George were sent off to become naval cadets on board the Royal Navy training ship, the HMS Britannia. Two years later, still naval cadets, the Queen decided to send her grandsons on a three-year world tour on board the HMS Bacante, I think it's called, Bacante, Bacante, uh, a steam and sail-powered ironclad warship. For three years, the two lads, who would have been 14 and 15 when a tour began, travelled the British Empire, visiting everywhere that was pink on the map, plus the US for good measure. So the Falklands, uh, South Africa, Australia, Singapore, and then also the Mediter much of the Mediterranean, Middle East, Greece, as well as Japan, where the brothers got their tattoos. It's just, it's amazing, the style of vacationing, of just like traveling around the world and always being able to set sight on the things that you own. Um, I mean, it sounds horrible though as well, right? Like not to be too sympathetic towards them, but like being 14, going on a three-year three around-the-world tour with the Royal Navy and your tutor and yeah. Or maybe maybe better than staying at home with your parents, I don't know. Um, I mean, those are your parents, Jesus. Yeah. So yeah, they they when they're in Japan, they got these tattoos, which um, which actually isn't that unusual because uh, 
their father, who would become Edward VII, actually had a, a Jerusalem cross tattoo which he got in the in the Holy Land um, years before when he was in the navy. Anyway, in 1833, Eddie left the navy while his younger brother stayed on. It was intended that he should go to university, uh, despite the lack of his educational prowess. And um, by some uh, coincidence, I suppose he he somehow managed to get a place at Trinity College, Cambridge. Um. And probably to avoid the 18-year-olds embarrassing himself in front of his fellow students, the family employed a, a tutor on top of his regular tutor from childhood, John Neil Dalton. Um, and while Dalton was in his 40s, his new tutor, James Kenneth Stephen, was in his early 20s. He was a student at Cambridge for a promising academic career. He was a member of the Apostles, which um, regular listeners all remember was this small university society of 12, 12 men who, you know, later members would be like J- John Maynard Keynes, I think was one, Anthony Blunt all these members. Um, and there's something a little gay about this, right? Or at least homosocial? Or oh, least... something super gay about it, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, well, yeah, so, homosocial, but, um, you know, where the borders drift between one and the other. Uh, he was a poet, and he was well-built and athletic. He was renowned for his sporting abilities while at school at Eton, of course. Do you have his and, number? <laughs> And he was, uh, he was very handsome with a strong jaw and uh, these, these very piercing eyes in the photographs that I saw anyway and the, the, the drawings. He was almost vampish. Um, and the two young men became very close. Whether their relationship was sexual, we can't really know. But Stephen became quite devoted to the young Eddie. Despite this affection, he didn't hold out high hopes for his prospects. At Cambridge, he wrote, quote, I do not think he can possibly derive much benefit from attending lectures at Cambridge. He hardly knows the meaning of the words to read. Now that is a read. Yeah, really. from, your own, from your own friend as well. And lover, possibly. Anyway, unsurprisingly for a young man of his intellect, uh, Stephen, was, uh, Stephen was, of course, right. Um, and Eddie took up residence in the same building as the Dons rather than the other undergraduates. And he pretty soon um, had found himself, you know, exempt from the, um, the needless irritation of actually having to take any exams. Instead, he just threw himself well, in. Under- if, the hmm? point of the school, if the point of the school is simply to reproduce class hierarchies instead of to give people an education, then, you know, if you have the potential future king coming to take classes there, it's not like he would need to get bogged down in any taking of any actual classes. Yeah, what does he need to learn? He just needs to have been there. Um, but he, he had a good time, uh, you know, with Stephen, um, and he became friends with um, this other young queer called A.C. Benson. Uh, who was to go on to become a fellow at Magdalen College, and he reshaped the development of the college into the modern institution it is today. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that the Oxbridge Colleges at this time, with their system of fellows, they often perform this function that's kind of similar to monasteries in the Middle Ages. They're a sort of a place to put queer men where they could be useful, or, or at the very least they attracted queer men because um, they were at this time largely men-only spaces, entirely men-only spaces, uh, where not only could men you know live together well past their quote-unquote marrying age but actually for a long time it was it was actually prohibited for married men to even become fellows so you know you're asking for that to happen as the the sort of culture of the space so poor beleaguered dalton the older the older um, tutor um he actually became very close to ac benson uh, while eddie was at university and he described him as quote an object of adoration and as a side note, actually, Benson would go on not only to become the editor of Queen Victoria's Letters after she died, but he wrote the lyrics to Land of Hope and Glory for Edward VII's coronation. 
So that's another thing we can hold against him. Oh, good God. Yeah. Eddie uh, also attracted, uh, sorry, he attended the, the very popular parties of someone called Oscar Browning, who was a Don. Um, and he was known to hold parties for the, quote, handsome and attractive undergraduates. And he'd actually been a school teacher at Eton, a housemaster, and he'd been dismissed from Eton following his friendships with students, many of whom he would take on European holidays. Oh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was to some extent a norm. Not that that's not a problematic norm, but non-sexual close friendships at the time between um, students and teachers in public schools could actually be a norm. That's not to say that, yeah, of course, that's still not potentially fucked up, um, but it doesn't necessarily imply that um, they were sexual. Although the reason he was sacked is because everyone thought they were. Um, and uh, Oscar Browning's actually, actually his biographer wrote that, quote, his house had a controversially pre-Raphaelite tone. The food was nourishing and plentiful. The curtains were by William Morris. There was much jolliness and ragging led by the man-boy at the centre, but the bronzes and marbles in his corridors discouraged roughhousing. Oscar Browning passionately desired to reform Eton so that it could educate an effective governing class for a democratic age. These new rulers in his ideal would rest their power on the platonic virtues of wisdom and goodness, as well as hereditary privilege, end quote. But wisdom and goodness were not all the... I can o- say, all I can say about that uh, is the same that uh, Mae West said when someone once said to her, goodness, what diamonds? And she said, goodness had nothing to do with it, baby. It's the same for the English upper classes. Goodness, what bronzes? Goodness, what William Morris curtains? Goodness had nothing to do with it, baby. Well, yeah, wisdom and goodness also were not the only platonic virtues that he was interested in. Um, he also advocated the platonic, in the, in the philosophical notion, the platonic notion of Greek love between men and boys. Uh, he was joined in this by his friend, the famous Victorian artist Simeon Solomon. Solomon was a regular visitor to Eton, and after his visits, the two men would exchange letters discussing the various virtues of the boys that he taught. Solomon himself is actually a fascinating figure in 19th century century queer art. He was a habitual cruiser for which he was always getting in trouble. In 1873, he was caught getting fucked in public toilets by a six-year-old stableman uh, for which he was sentenced to 18 months hard labor, which led to Browning breaking off their friendship. But I digress. These are, these are just to, you know, uh, to intimate the circles in which Eddie was moving in, in which homosexuality was, if not accepted, then definitely a common feature. And while there is no evidence that Eddie was having sex with these men, um, there's also no evidence that he was having sex with women at the time either. So let's just say we don't know. Um, when he dropped out of university in 1885, he joined the 10th Royal Hussars, a cavalry unit in which his father was a colonel. But he wasn't very good at that either. He didn't really enjoy drilling and he preferred to play polo. Uh, now, here, here Ben, here, I've got some good gossip, which is almost certainly apocryphal, but... The rumour is that one of Eddie's main problems with playing polo was the fact that he had an enormous cock. And so in order to keep his cock tucked neatly along one leg, where it wasn't in danger of you know, being trapped between his body and the saddle and the horse, uh, he had his bell end pierced so that he could have a ribbon loop, loop through the piercing uh, around the tip of his cock, and then he could tie his cock to his leg to keep it out of the way. And that's where we get the name of the piercing, the Prince Albert. Uh, That's where that comes from? Yeah, not not his grandfather, Prince Albert, as is commonly thought. I uh, mean, who knew 
that Victoria's program of systematically naming things after Prince Albert would lead this far. Uh, <laughs> and yet, things have unforeseen consequences even for empresses of India. I guess that's the lesson that we can all learn here today. That, the thing to... is that that does sound very apocryphal because I can't imagine if you're playing polo and you have a ribbon tied through the head of your dick and then it's tied around your leg. I can't imagine that that's helpful. If you fell off the horse, I'm just, I'm getting sort of, I'm doing a lot of sympathetic wincing uh, for the viewers at home. You can't see me doing it. No kind of bouncing about a little bit of my chair. Uh, it just doesn't sound like a very well, good uh, solution to that to, to that problem. And uh, well, you'll I be, you'll be pleased. You'll be well, pleased. I appreciate the very gay solution of the Prince Albert piercing. <laughs> I can also suggest the equally gay innovation of the jockstrap. Um, well, actually, uh, I was doing some research into it, obviously, because I care about the historical accuracy and wanting to impart this knowledge to uh, our listeners. So I was, I was searching extensively for information about the Prince Albert. But no, I saw someone else saying that actually, no, that's not true. But he did have um, a special cock ring that had the same function and that that was actually not uncommon. I don't know if that's true. I wonder how big your dick has to be for it to become like a recurrent problem in a game of polo. But um, I mean, maybe in a... I do think he's a, a better, he's a better candidate for it than his grandfather, I'd supporters. say. Hmm? Maybe, in a, maybe in an era before athletic supporters. Yeah, maybe, yeah. This is this was what was done. I mean, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so, why right in viewers, if you have experience with, uh, well, no. Uh, <laughs> I mean, right in if you have experience either with extremely uh, large dicks or uh, with uh, pre-spandex athletic supporters, we would love to hear more from you, <laughs> fashion historians. This one's for you. So, while he was in the Hazars, um, his comrades there uh, tried to get him interested in women with a friend writing that, quote, his brother officers had said that they would, like to, uh, they would like to make a man of the world of him. Into that world, he refused to be initiated, end quote. Um, although he, he, had, he had certainly been initiated into some sort of world because throughout his time in the military, he was being treated for gonorrhea. Um, and it was in the Hussars, Hussars that he met George Holford, who was to become his equerry for the remainder of his life. And I did note about George Holford um, in his biography. It said that he was said to be an eligible bachelor who was a famous, quote, grower of orchids, orchids, amaryllids, and Javanese rhododendron, which should certainly be a, be a euphemism. You know, is he, you know, a, is, is he a, you know, a, Jav, a grower of Javanese rhododendron? Well, you know, sometimes when your Javanese rhododendron is too big to not be... <laughs> Damage in a game of polo, you have to make a piercing through the bell end and 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 tie it to some sort of uh, stake. Anyway, they'd be very uh, become very close and uh, uh, spend a lot of time together visiting places, which will come up in the future. Anyway, now perhaps we should look a little more widely at sex culture in Victorian London. Um, prostitution in a in a rapidly urbanising industrial city like London at the time. Uh, which also suffered from extensive poverty uh, and which had offered a, this huge array of nightlife in general. Of course, it was very common. And child abuse and trafficking was part of that economy. And in 1885, the newspaper editor, W.T. Stead, had both shocked and titillated readers of the Pall Mall Gazette with his eye-opening but also prurient expose of the trade in young girls for purposes of sex. Stead had actually procured a child through these trafficking networks himself in order to add to the interest of the story. Um, and the issue before the expose uh, in the paper, the issue, the issue before included uh, a warning which went as follows, quote, 
we say quite frankly today that all those who are squeamish and all those who are prudish and all those who prefer to live in a fool's paradise of imaginary innocence and purity, selfishly oblivious to the horrible realities which torment those whose lives are passed in a London inferno, will do well not to read the Pall Mall Gazette on Monday and the three following days. The story of an actual pilgrimage into a real hell is not pleasant reading, and it is not meant to be. It is, however, an authentic record of unimpeachable facts, adom- uh, uh, abominable, unutterable, and worse than fables yet have feigned or fear conceived. And obviously that's not a warning, it's an advertisement, really. And Stead marketed his um, very influential reporting as part of a sort of wider bourgeois sex panic into the immoral sex lives of the working classes. Um, but the effect of Stead's report, yeah, was huge. Um, and I've, I've actually written before about this moral panic in a, in a, a long piece for my newsletter called Mo- uh, Modern Babylon, for those who are interested, because it is actually a super interesting story about the media as well. But the investigation was intended as a piece of campaigning journalism to force Parliament to pick up a piece of legislation that was languishing in the Commons and was in danger of being kicked into the long grass. That legislation was the Criminal Law Amendment Bill, which was being advocated for by a coalition of feminists, child protection charities such as the newly formed SBCC, which is now the NSBCC, the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, and the Society for the Suppression of Vice. The public outrage caused by Stead's ability to purchase this child named uh, Eliza Armstrong in what became known as the Eliza Armstrong case forced through debate on the bill, which became the 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act. And that act uh, included a number of important new provisions, including raising the age of consent from 13 to 16 years, um, heterosexual age of consent, of course. Uh, It made a criminal offence to procure girls for prostitution by administering drugs, intimidation or fraud. It punished householders who would permit underage sex on their premises, Uh, It made a criminal offence to abduct a girl under 18 for the purposes of carnal knowledge and many more uh, similar amendments based around um, child prostitution. However, fast law is usually bad law. And in the heated and speedy debates that preceded the passing of the law, an amendment to the law was included that was just voted through. That amendment was added at the very last minute in the report stage by the Liberal MP for Northampton, uh, Henry Labouchere. Some historians will wonder whether he intended it as a wrecking amendment, like a, a piece of sloppy law that's introduced by an opponent of the bill that would force MPs to vote against the entire bill in order to prevent the bad law being passed. But others actually, and probably more likely, suggest that Henry Labouchere was actually sincere in its introduction. And certainly he was homophobic, and the amendment introduced the bill uh, into the bill a piece of legislation that criminalised for the first time gross indecency between men. Leave it to a liberal (laughs) to either to either um, find a way to legislate against something that needs legislating against, but to do it badly and in such a way that ends up criminalizing uh, something that uh, like unintentionally uh, or to do some too clever by half. I'll introduce this thing because then they'll actually see what a bad idea the rest of this is. And then we'll be able to blah, 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 blah. Then it just becomes the fucking law. Jesus, right. they've always been like this, haven't they? Yeah. So, um, so prior to this, the eighteen eighty five criminal uh, criminal justice amendment, uh, criminal law amendment act, um, it was only sodomy that was illegal under the fifteen thirty three buggery acts that had been passed by Henry VIII. 
uh, which was originally a capital offence, although the death penalty had been replaced for life imprisonment uh, under the Offences Against the Person Act 1861, and it, it remained a crime until 1967. And this, Naomi Wolf, is why you look up the meaning of certain words before you publish your book. Oh, let's not get into that debate. Um, but conviction under the 1533 Act re required both penetration and ejaculation. Um, and in the early 18th century, uh, sorry, in the early 19th century, that was changed again um, so that you didn't actually need to come to be executed, which is helpful. Uh, but this wasn't enough. And as we've discussed in earlier episodes, it was around this time that the idea of, uh, that was emerging of the, the homosexual or the invert as a defined identity in itself, and not just a thing that people did, but a thing that people were. And some some people, like men like Edward Carpenter or Oscar Wilde, were making these claims towards the idea that this was um, normal, even moral way to be. But obviously for most Victorians, the rising figure of the homosexual was a, a terrifying new threat to, to the moral order, and specifically to this new figure of innocence, the, the child. Um, and it was one created by both urbanization and a collapse in public morals. Uh, in fact, in the words of the fantastically named magazine of the time, the Yokel's Preceptor. Uh, the Yokel's Preceptor? Yeah. It going, also sounds like a euphemism for... Yeah. I, I subscribe to the Yokel's Preceptor. Anyway, uh, well, if, quite, you, if, you, if you pierce the tip of your Yokel's Preceptor, then <laughs> in the middle of a polo match, it's much easier to... Um, so according to the Yokel's Preceptor, quote, the increase of these monsters in the shape of men, commonly designated margeries, puffs, etc., of late years in the great metropolis, renders it necessary for the safety of the public that they should be made known. Will the reader credit it? But such is nevertheless the fact that these monsters actually walk the street the same as the whores, looking out for a chance? Yes, the Quadrant, Fleet Street, Hoban, the Strand, etc., are actually thronged with them. Nay, it is not long since, in the neighbourhood of Charing Cross, they posted bills in the windows of several public houses, cautioning the public to beware the sods. Plus ça change. <laughs> Thank God. Um, and so the amendment was passed, and the amendment read, uh, any male person who, in public or private, commits or is a party to the commission of, or procures, or attempts to procure the commission by any male person of, any act of gross indecency with another male person shall be guilty of a misdemeanor and being convicted thereof shall be liable at the discretion of the court to be imprisoned for any term not exceeding two years with or without hard labor. So like I said before, quick laws are bad laws. Um, there's a number of things within a law that are very ill-defined. For example, what does gross indecency actually mean? It's never actually defined in the law. And what does it mean to attempt to procure it? Under the law, men could be prosecuted not just for something like touching another man's cock or kissing him, but just for procuring that, i.e. asking someone if they fancy a blowjob or a wank, or even for attempting to procure it. So like a quick glance at the cock of a man in a cubicle next door uh, could and did lead to sentences of two years hard labor. In the end, it was this law that did for Oscar Wilde, destroying his mind and his body. It was this law that did for Alan Turing, for having sex in his own home, which probably led the mild-mannered inventor of the modern computer, a man who can probably be credited with saving millions of lives in the Second World War, to being tortured by the British state, um, chemically castrated, and eventually taking his own life as a result. While subsequent laws partially decriminalised gay sex in cer certain circumstances in uh, England and Wales in 1967, um, 
in Scotland in 1976 and in Northern Ireland in 1982, the law itself wasn't actually repealed and the age of consent equalised until 2003. So this law was passed the year that Eddie left Cambridge and joined the Hazars. Four years later, it was to become very significant indeed. It was July 1889. There had been a theft at the London Central Telegraph office and PC Luke Hanks had been sent to investigate. It was a minor case. In those days, money didn't pass so much through banks, but from person to person, often in a mail, either as cash or as postal orders. In central London, much of the business of the post office was done by messenger boys, teenage boys who'd travel on foot with letters, parcels and telegrams. They often had to carry money and were banned from carrying their own cash or or any items, actually, to avoid getting theirs mixed up with customers accidentally or on purpose. Um, And so theft obviously could be a problem. So much so, actually, that PC Hanks was actually a post constable investigating crimes within the post office. So this this was his beat. This was normal for him. A 15-year-old messenger boy had been bought before him with 18 shillings on him, which was unaccounted for. 18 shillings was more than he'd normally get paid for a week's work. It's like a week and a half's work or something. And he didn't want to explain where he'd got it from, but PC Hanks hadn't had any thefts reported. And so the boy eventually confessed that he'd been doing some work on the side. He'd actually had a brief, what seems like a brief wank with another messenger boy, an 18-year-old post boy called uh, Henry Newlove. Uh, in Henry Newlove? Henry Newlove, yeah. Uh, in the basement of the post office, in fact. And Henry had introduced him to a friend of his, um, a landlord called Charles Hammond. Hammond ran a male brothel at 19 Cleveland Street, a thoroughfare in Fitzrovia, which is just above Soho. Newlove told him that he could make good money there having sex with men for five shillings a time. Hammond would take one shilling from him and the rest he'd get to keep. It wasn't just him, he said, and then he named a bunch of other messenger boys who also worked at 19 Cleveland Street. So this was above PC Hank's pay grade, or remit, in fact. So he told his superior, John Phillips, who informed the Postmaster General, and then the Postmaster General passed it over to Commissioner Munro, the head of Scotland Yard, because he recognised it was a very serious issue, you know, because the post office is an organ of state, and if it's implicated in multiple offences of gross indecency, it's a big problem. So um, Detective Inspector Frederick Aberline was put on the case, and some people might recognise that name. Uh, Aberline was a well-known figure at the time, and he was actually at the time in charge of the Jack the Ripper case, which had been running since the year before. But this was seen to be more pressing, so he was switched over to this case. On the 6th of July, Scotland Yard obtained a warrant and forced entry to the brothel on Cleveland Street, which was a very high-class establishment. It was you know, well-upholstered, tastefully decorated in this Victorian style. Um, expensive. But Hammond had been tipped off and he'd done a runner. And Hammond, meanwhile, had got in touch with New Love and he offered what is actually extremely good advice, which is um, no comment, don't talk to the police at all. But New Love, he was like, well, this is really unfair. You know, he, you know, he was walking with the police officer to the police station the next day to, to be uh, questioned again. And he said, you know, it doesn't seem fair that I'm getting in trouble because I'm just a postboy when my clients, Lord Euston and Lord Arthur Somerset, aren't being questioned at all. And obviously none had figured out these were the clients yet. They just thought it was a, a regular brothel, not a sort of high-end brothel. So the implications of the case just like exploded. Um, Hammond had already done a runner. He was, he was already in France. So what the police decided to do was to um, put surveillance onto 19 Cleveland Street and see who turned up. So first, you know, some well-dressed businessmen in 
in bowler hats turned up, but then they found the house empty of young men, so they left. And then somebody turned up in military uniform and then left. And wait, who's this? An MP, yeah, of course. And then a prominent member of the National Liberal Club. And then who they were waiting for, the son of the Duke of Beaufort, Lord Arthur Sutherland, who managed the stables of no less than the Prince of Wales, the father of Eddie. Um, So the police arrested an acquaintance of Hammond's uh, called George Veck, and they found on him a letter from a young man called Algernon Allies, which is a very Victorian name. Uh, So they interviewed Algernon Algernon Allies, and he admitted that, yes, he'd been paid to have sex with Lord Somerset. So the police then uh, interviewed Somerset actually twice, but conveniently, they didn't arrest him. And even more conveniently, Somerset realized, oh, I've got some urgent business to conduct in Germany, where um, the Prince of Wales was on holiday. So he he left the country, went to Germany. And in the meantime, he managed to, um, to find the time to arrange a solicitor, a man called Arthur Newton. And... um, Quite honourably, actually, he he arranged and paid for him to represent both New Love and Vec, who were both tried, and they both pled guilty to indecency charges, um, which they for which they received uh, quite short, hard labour sentences. So not nice, but actually quite lenient considering the attitude at the time. Um, and Hammond, in the meantime, had skedaddled to the US. Uh, his passage paid for by Newton, uh, i.e., paid for by Lord Arthur Somerset. Uh, in September, thinking that the danger had passed, um, the two guys had been sentenced or in jail for doing their hard labour. Lord Somerset returned to London, but the Scotland Yard Commissioner Munro um, wanted Somerset charged, uh, but the process was being blocked by the Lord Chancellor, Lord Halsbury. With these rumours circling and his arrest pending, uh, Somerset fled again, having been tipped off, probably by none other than the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury. The case was obviously extremely sensitive, so much so that Lord Somerset's name was actually pasted out and like pasted over in all the official reports, so it wasn't showing. And the Prince of Wales, uh, Eddie's father, was very pleased that Somerset had been allowed to escape justice. And he he actually asked that were he, quote, ever dare to show his face in England again, um, they'd leave him be, The the case would be dropped against him. But he might have had another reason to be pleased. The rumours had started to spread from the post office to Whitehall to the palace that Somerset's friend, who had accompanied him repeatedly to Cleveland Street, was none other than Prince Eddie. Lord Somerset's solicitor, Arthur Newton, um, had actually dropped a note to Hamilton Cuff, who was um, the man in charge of bringing the charges against him, against uh, Lord Somerset, that is. And Hamilton Cuff wrote to the Director of Public Prosecutions, quote, I am told that Newton has boasted that if we go on a very distinguished, if we go on, a very distinguished person will be involved. And then in brackets, P-A-V, which presumably means Prince Albert Victor. I don't mean to say that I, for one instance, credit it, but in such circumstances as this one, uh, as this one never knows what may be said, be concocted or be true. Um, Lord Somerset actually never returned to England. He he lived in a, a comfortable exile in the south of France until the mid-1920s with um, a man called James Neal. But in a private letter later to uh, Reginald Brett, the second Viscount Escher, he wrote, quote, I've never mentioned the boy's name, P-A-V, except to uh, Sir Dighton Probin, Oliver Montague and Francis Nollies. Had they been wise, hearing what I knew, and therefore what others knew, they ought to have hushed the matter up, instead of stirring up as they did with all the authorities. 
But Lord Euston, on the other hand, didn't run um, and he wasn't charged. In fact, he'd go on to sue the radical journalist Ernest Park for suggesting that he was involved in a, quote, an indescribably loathsome scandal in Cleveland Street and for suggesting that he'd been allowed to escape to Peru in order that he didn't name an even more high-profile figure, obviously commonly thought to be Prince Eddie. But Euston hadn't run, he was still in London, and so he sued, claiming that um, although he'd been there, he'd been misled into attending, um, having been handed a card on the street advertising pose plastique um, and, the, 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 and with the, you know, the, the address of the brothel. And pose, pose plastique uh, at the time was like a phrase that referred to these kind of sex shows. They were like nude um, female uh, tableaus. So it wasn't, it wasn't illegal if the women didn't move, right? So it was artistic. <laughs> what? This continued for a long time, like well into the 20th century. Hold on, what? Yeah, so the curtain would open. And there'd be nude women there and they'd be taking pose. They'd be like making poses, pose plastique. Um, and the men would sit and watch and the women would just stay perfectly still. And then the, the curtains would close and then the women would adopt a different pose, these, these tableaus. Um, and that was legal. If they moved, it was a criminal offense. Um, it's just, you know, the way that people create laws around morality, they have to create, you know, very strange, complete arbitrary rules about what is and isn't lewd. Obviously, like that's not how it works. It's contextual, but um, uh, that's uh, the English. Um, and then the trial, this this um, libel trial, I guess, against Ernest Park uh, was kind of a farce. You know, like people disagreeing with each, like witnesses who disagreed or weren't consistent, things like this. Um, and not least, thanks to the presence of uh, a notorious Irish rent boy called John Saul, who refused to act this part of the you know this poor exploit, exploited boy, and instead he delivered a very graphic and lewd description of what he'd been up to with all these lords, and it was very shocking. And then afterwards, he wrote this, um, or was said to have written this uh, pornographic um, memoir, which is a very interesting sort of description of you know British homosexual culture at the time. Um, and yeah, he clearly thought that he like well, was right. He was doing an honest job, and he just described it, I guess. But um, it didn't matter. Uh, Lord Euston won, uh, although this is probably a miscarriage of justice, or at least Euston, you know, posing as this naive heterosexual who was tricked into visiting a male brothel, almost certainly was, because he was a very popular and very profitable figure on London's gay scene at the time with rent boys, and he was very often extorted by his tricks. Um, especially by this guy called Robert Clyburn, who was very well known as a as a, a rent boy who um, blackmailed. In fact, uh, he was so well known as, uh, for his relationship and being repeatedly extorted by this Robert Clyburn that Oscar Wilde actually joked that Clyburn should get a, a Victoria Cross, like a medal for his tenacity and bravery, repeatedly having a go at this guy. Anyway, um, as the affair emerged, was like emerging over the course of that year, Eddie was rushed off on actually a pre-planned, but also quite convenient seven month tour of India. Um, Newton was then tried for helping Hammond escape, which seems pretty unfair, and also for perverting the course of justice. And he re received a very harsh sentence that actually a lot of the legal profession complained about. They said it was very unfair um, because the, the, the people he was helping to escape hadn't actually been charged yet. So whether it was actually a perverting the course of justice, who knows. But the accusations 
of a cover-up to uh, defend somebody more high-profile and even more high-profile than Lord Somerset, who was, you know, let's not forget he was a, well, he was a lord, but he was also like a high-ranking member of the royal household. This rumour about this person, unnamed, uh, refused to go away. There was a, a motion in Parliament to debate the alleged cover-up, uh, and especially the role of the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, who would claim conveniently that his memory failed him when he was asked to detail about key parts of the affair. In a passionate debate that was ultimately unsuccessful, one MP argued that while he didn't believe this quote-unquote gentleman of a very high position uh, was involved, he did believe that there was a conspiracy to pervert a course of justice at the very highest levels of government, including the Prime Minister. And that man, that MP, was no other than Henry Labouchere. Um, I mean, did he actually not believe that the prince was involved? Like, it's almost impossible to tell because to accuse him would be tantamount to treason. You know, this is the future king of England and to you as Henry Labouchere, the campaigner against homosexuality, to accuse the prince of England of being, um, of, of being guilty of gross indecency is, you know, dangerous. But outside of the UK, people clearly did think it was him. Um, in fact, a, a US newspaper at the time ran the following story, which I'm just going to read in full because it's quite good. Prince Victor is the headline. Cable reports from England announced that Prince Victor Albert, eldest son of the Prince of Wales and heir presumptive to the throne, has returned from India, where he had gone to escape the smoke of the Cleveland Street scandal in which he was mixed up. The information is further vouchsafed that Prince Victor insists on marrying his cousin against the protests of the royal house and offers to renounce his claims to the throne in favour of his next younger brother, George, if he is allowed to marry the girl of his choice and have a satisfactory com uh, competency settled upon him. It is hinted that the people generally, generally would prefer to see the wild young prince accommodated in his freak. For the, uh, for the reason that physically and mentally he is something of a wreck and not half the man in all the attributes of a manly makeup that characterises George. Victor seems to inherit his father's vices without, without uh, retaining many of his virtues. And his connection with the Cleveland Street scandal is only another indication of the debauchery which two conspicuously unctures, no, tinctures, uh, European royalty. The inbred crowd of royal stock of all Europe is becoming steadily deteriorated both bodily and mentally and cannot long in any event survive the strength of a higher order of government, uh, government governmental civilization which the common people are attaining. Whether England will ever have a king after the Prince of Wales is a matter of speculation. Unfortunately, <laughs> they, they yeah. kept having them. So who's this woman in question that he <clears throat> wished to marry? Uh, it wasn't Princess Alex of Hesse and uh, Rhine, who was the, his initial choice, but um, she didn't want to marry her first cousin, Eddie. So instead, she married her second cousin, the future Tsar Nicholas of Russia, which turned out very well for her. She ended up being shot by the Bolsheviks in 1918 and thrown down a mine. No, it was, instead, it was Princess Helena of Orléans, the daughter of a pretender to the French throne. Um, and it seems that the two fell desperately in love during this period. But even though she promised that she'd convert from Catholicism to, um, to the Church of England, and he offered to abdicate his future crown, you know, to renounce his claim, neither, neither families would permit the, the heir to marry a Catholic, uh, even if the offer of his abdication in favour of his smarter, more politically aware brother, George, was actually quite tempting. But in the words of Christopher Hitchens, quote, the misogynistic words of Christopher Hitchens, of course, um, it was felt in court circles that a robust woman should be martyred to this non-entity and the sturdy Princess Victoria Mary of Tech 
was led lowing into the ring. Lowing or lowing? It's like, yeah, lowing like cattle, right? Lowing, I think, yeah. yeah. Lowing into the ring. Oof. Yeah. I mean, grim, but kind of an accurate description, I think. Uh, the two were engaged to be married, and by 1891, it seems like the Cleveland Street scandal, um, Helena, the numerous rumours of sex with chorus girls, all that had sort of blown over, and maybe he would be king. But a week before his 28th birthday in January 1892, he contracted flu and then pneumonia and died. And actually, um, considering the way they treated him when he was alive and the way they talked about him, they, they, his family really mourned, mourned the loss very deeply. His brother wrote, uh, George wrote regretfully, quote, how deeply I did love him. And I remember with pain nearly every hard word and little quarrel I ever had with him. And I long to ask his forgiveness, but alas, it is too late now. And the British public, who knew little of the scandals and worries that had pained his family, seems to mourn a loss of their own of their once future king as well, um, as did his uh, fiance. Although in the end, she married George, her, uh, his younger brother, because they weren't married; they were just engaged. And um, she became the future grandmother of Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mary. Anyway, um, Eddie was buried in St George's Chapel in Windsor. And on his tomb was engraved the name of his only true female love, Helene. His old friend, James Kenneth Stevens, Stephen, on hearing the news, was so grief-stricken that he refused to eat. And he never ate again, and he died himself 20 days later at the age of 32. And that is the life of Prince Albert Victor, or Eddie. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our Patreon listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful T-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Well, thank you for that story, Hugh. So how likely do you think it actually was that the heir to the English throne was caught up personally in the Cleveland Street scandal? Um, there is no direct evidence. And I don't ask this question in order to... I don't ask this question because I think so much of the morals of the royal family. I ask this question because I wonder why someone who was in that position would have been so titanically stupid, although maybe we have our answer from the fact that he seems to have been, by all accounts, a remarkably stupid person. Yeah, I think you could say the same, same thing about all of them getting tied up in scandals all the time, you know? Like, they, 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 they do stupid stuff because of this strange... Uh, almost medieval code around the purpose of marriage and love. You know why? Why did why did they marry, why did Prince Charles marry Princess Diana? You know, 
in the first interview where they asked where, asked him them together, the first interview of these two together, and he asked them, are they in love? And Princess Diana says very much so. And um, Prince Charles says, yes, whatever love means. I mean, that's a clue, right? Who would continue in that relationship? The answer is the royal family. Like they do these things, they have this different code. And I think in terms of like, uh, and they are always getting in trouble. They're always doing stupid stuff because they, they're surrounded by yes men, of course. Um, and so many, I guess, if you were a gay man at that time or bisexual man or you wanted to have homosexual sex, um, you probably wanted to have it with your social inferior if you're in that sort of position. Uh, I mean, you absolutely wanted to have it with your social inferior. Uh, he probably just thought he could get away with it if he did do it. I mean, he was... the. It's very easy to believe the other rumours about him, you know, having sex with chorus girls and stuff. It doesn't, doesn't seem strange at all, so why would it be strange that he would have sex with post boys? I suppose. I, I think, don't know. I don't know if he did it or not. I don't know if... So it seems like a kind of desire that he could have uh, possibly fulfilled in so many uh, less easy-to-get-caught ways, although I suppose for some of these guys, getting caught is kind of the point. Yeah, but also, and also, but you're also in a position where, like, um, I don't know, like the, the 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 norm of prostitution at that time, I guess, is like kind of different, you know. Like, I think, I don't know, like if you're if you're him, you're twenty, what, twenty three, twenty four, um, your mate who works for your dad is like, you know, it's Friday night, I'm gonna go and get laid. Do you want to come with me? I think oh. I think it's just part perhaps like a, um, a different sort of relationship between uh, power, you know, at, th- at that time, you know, people not calling people out who are famous in that way or, or so powerful and rich, um, um, a different relationship towards sex and sex work at the time. And also a completely different relationship towards the idea of getting caught. You know, it's not, no one's got a smartphone or even a camera to you know take your photo. You know, like I think, I think, our understanding of scandals is coloured by the number of scandals that exist over the 20th century. But if you're in the 1880s, you might not have the same um, radar for scandal. That makes sense. Uh, and especially if you have this kind of inbred belief that nothing that you can do will ever touch you. Um, and we don't know whether he did it or not. Like, I do think, I do think the idea that it's like, completely implausible is wrong. Like I think it's very, very possible that the the situation was that he could do it. Um, I think there's quite a lot of circumstantial evidence throughout his life that he was bisexual. Um, You know, it's not the sort, if you, if you go into this assuming that people like just presuming that everyone is heterosexual, then it's maybe different. But if you go into it thinking, you know, like lots of people are uh, homosexual and bisexual, it's more, it's much more easy to see that it's possible that he was engaging in it. And um, there's, I mean, one of his biographers who wrote specifically about his um, his sexuality, a guy called Theo Aronson, um, you know, because his family talks a lot about this, like this, this, this quote, this phrase I keep using about him living a dissipated life, and um, and Aronson says the admittedly circumstantial evidence was that the unspecified dissipations were predominantly homosexual. And I I kind of agree with that. I think he probably, I think he was probably a young bisexual man who predominantly had sex with other men um, because it was 
safer in terms of pregnancy, I guess, and because that was his urges. Um, and uh, it's possible, but but by by no means uh, proven that he was involved in this scandal. Uh, by the same by the same token, though, he's a good person to bring in if you're Lord, Lord Arthur Somerset and you want to shut down the the investigation to make those hints that if you investigate further, it's him who's going to be involved. Um, is a good way to shut it down, although a risky risky one because um, if they decide to shut you down, they probably can. Yeah. Um, going back to this sort of model that you just laid out of him being a young bisexual man who kind of gets his kicks mostly with other men. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that relates to some of the other models of uh, turn of the 20th century elite male homosexuality we've talked about on the show? Do you see him as having kind of, uh, as being sort of similar to other uh, others of the men that we've, that we've spoken about or? Um, well, he exists within, within all those social frameworks that we've talked about in various people like touching on in the past. He exists in almost all of them. Aristocracy, um, private education, Cambridge or Oxbridge, uh, the army, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a royal flush, if you beg the pun, of, um, of places where homosexuality was normalized as part of the um, social system for young men. That makes complete sense. Um, I mean, he's horny. He's a, he's a teenager, then he's in his 20s, and his entire life is in homosocial environments. Um, and ones which, which... Oh, and the Navy. He was in the frigging Navy, for God's sake. You know, like, he, he, he's hit them all. Um, he's, in, he's, he's living in barracks. He's living in uh, private school. He's, uh, he's, he's in halls at, uh, in an all-male Cambridge University. You know, like... Is this the closest that someone who, uh, who can be this closely linked to uh, gay sex has come to the sort of highest levels of the British royal family, at least in the modern era? For legal reasons, I won't answer that question. <laughs> other, to, other than to say, I fully believe the rumours I've heard about living royals in that way as well. For the same, exactly the same reasons. I'll have to ask you about those living rumours, uh, those rumours about living royals once the uh, mics are no longer running and we're no longer subject to UK libel law, which is uh, vicious and uh, difficult to get around. Uh, but for now, I will just ask you the inevitable question. Oh, actually, I've got one, one more thing to say, which I didn't include in the main profile because the um, historical evidence for it is extremely flimsy and it's also the subject of uh, wild conspiracy theories. But, um, but it's, if people are into it, they might want to look it up, is there is a persistent, um, persistent uh, thread within Jack the Ripper conspiracy theories that either he was Jack the Ripper um, or, and, and because he was suffering potentially from syphilis at the time, although there's, there's not as much evidence for that as gonorrhea, but if he had tertiary syphilis, that was the idea. Or that, um, that his friend, uh, uh, James Kenneth Stephen was Jack the Ripper. Um, again, like it's, as with all Jack the Ripper series, it's, it's pretty thin, but, um, but if you're in interested in that, there are plenty of books you can also read, which, and, and actually pro probably it's where Prince Eddie comes up most in popular culture is in, is in Ripperology, which is, um, a very grim, uh, a very grim world of, um, prurient true, true crime. My God. Well, 
assuming he wasn't Jack the Ripper, because if he was, the ethics of this are going to be um, even uh, <laughs> just on a whole different level here. Um, I mean, certain I Ripper think... crimes, certain Ripper crimes occurred where he's documented as being far from London. So <laughs> it seems to me complete nonsense that he would possibly Jack be Jack the Ripper. Um, there's like more, more like there's a more compelling fiction, I guess, around the idea that James Kenneth Stephen was in some way related. He has more links towards people who were involved, um, such as uh, such as a, the royal surgeon who um, who was also supposedly linked, and um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. But yeah, probably more bollocks. So I think that brings us to our inevitable conclusion here, where we ask whether uh, Prince Eddie was a uh, bad gay and what is your distinguished verdict well anyone who's going to grow into the title um grace of god of great britain ireland and the british dominions beyond the seas king defender of faith and emperor of india isn't in my book inherently bad um whether he i mean he seems to be like uh there's nothing particularly in his life other than the the circumstances of his birth and then the, the, the world that he operates in that makes him seem like a personally particularly bad person I feel kind of sorry for him like not being able to marry the person he loves but that's a common royal story i guess um but yeah i'd say bad gay um the jury's out we'll never know well um I would agree with that assessment, um, although, I don't know, I'm convinced by your gossip. I'm willing to go there on the gay part. Um, Are you willing to go there on again, the Cleveland Street part? I'm going to go ahead and say yes, just to be spicy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people who know me will know that I'm always willing to go there on the gay part. So. Uh, Hugh, what are some of the sources that you used to uh, research this episode that people might want to look at if they were interested in learning more about this person? Um, well, one of the sources I used is a book called Prince Eddie, The King Britain Never Had by Andrew Cook. Uh, London and the Culture of Homosexuality, 1885 to 1914 by Matt Cook. I don't know if they're related. Uh, Queer City by Peter Ackroyd, which is a very interesting, uh, fun little book in general, but um, the last chapter is uh, really painful to read. It's all about like woke culture and stuff like this, you know, cancel culture um, and <laughs> this crap. And uh, <coughs> But the rest of it's good. And lastly, uh, The Cleveland Street Scandal by old friend of the show. In fact, I think should probably be patron saint of the show, H. Montgomery Hyde. Who, oh my God! Should we just do a profile of him at some point? Yeah, but I don't think I don't think he's gay. There's no evidence he's gay. But like, for those who have not heard him mentioned in previous episodes, he's somebody who repeat. He's a he's a Ulster Unionist MP from the 1950s, who um, who lost his position actually. Uh, was deselected as an MP because he was so um, in favour favour of law reform around homosexuality and um, and. Uh, he just comes up in every time you research anyone gay from history who has anything to do with the UK um, or Ireland. Um, there he is. A weird, weird guy, but, um, but, but great, great books. Amazing. Well, uh, maybe someday we'll do uh, an episode about him and try to figure out if he was gay or not. Um, but until then, you can... Follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. 
And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod, and you can visit our website at badgazepod.com in order to find an episode archive, including many other episodes in which we have uh, cited the work of H. Montgomery Hyde. Uh, and you can also find there a link to our Patreon to support the show, and also beautiful t-shirts like the one that I'm wearing now. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.